Moncrief on News Talk with the all new Dacia Duster. We've even impressed ourselves with this one. Now, you'll be familiar with the story of Noah and the flood from the Old Testament, but there are many other versions of this story in other religions. A 3,000-year-old Babylonian tablet also tells a story of a warning from a god and need to build an ark. But according to a new translation of it, it was phrased ambiguously and could be an early example of fake news. The person who carried it out was Dr. Martin Worthington from the University of Cambridge. Martin, good afternoon. Good afternoon and thank you so much for having me. I, I, I suppose some people might be surprised to know there's an earlier version of the Noah's Ark story. In, in these Babylonian tablets, what similarities are there to the version in the Old Testament? The story of the flood crops up in religions and mythologies all over the world. But there is a very special relationship between the Babylonian version and the version found in Genesis. Not only does the flood hero build an ark and is commanded by a god to take aboard, um, in the Babylonian version, the seed of all living creatures, and of course in the other version, the animals, um, but also when the flood waters recede, in both versions, the flood hero sends out birds um, to see if they come back. So this isn't just some distant, far away mythological relative. These are two stories that have quite a close connection. In fact, the connection is made even closer by a word which occurs in the biblical account, Gopher, which is not attested elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, Bible, and is very probably a Babylonian loan word. So Gopher is probably related to Kupru, which means bitumen in Babylonian. So we actually have a sign of some sort of borrowing. Um, We do have uh, Babylonian tablets, including a fragment of the um, Gilgamesh poem turning up in Israel. So it's quite likely that ancient Hebrews knew at least a version of the Mesopotamian flood story. Uh, So people debate the exact nature of the connection, but it seems the connection was close. I suppose one difference, though, is in in, uh, on the Babylonian version, there's more than one God. Absolutely. So um, in the Bible, you have one God, as it were, with, you might say, two minds. A, I will annihilate humanity, but I won't annihilate all of them. Mm. What happens in the Babylonian version is that the gods agree collectively to annihilate humanity, but then one of their number opts out and decides to undermine the plan by alerting the flood hero. So you have one god working against his fellows in the Babylonian story. Now, in your translation of it, though, um, uh, uh, you're saying that perhaps there was a, there was a bit of, an, uh, not ambivalence, but it was being deliberately vague as to perhaps give the wrong impression. Oh, yes, and it's even more than vagueness. So um, this is an idea which I've put forward in a recent book called Ayer's Duplicity in the Gilgamesh Flood Story, published by Routledge, forgive the plug. Um, So this is how I think it goes. Um, When the god alerts the flood hero in this Babylonian story, he says, you have to build the ark. And the flood hero replies, I have no problem building the ark, but how will I get people to help me? And the same god says, "Hmm, all right, you go and say this to them. And this is a message nine lines long, which on the surface says there will be a rain of birds and fish and wheat and it's all going to be great. So the people hear this, they're infused and they set to work, they build the ark expecting this rain of food. Of course, they all drown. Now, for a very long time, people have been um, looking at this message very closely to see if it might be one of those ambivalent oracles which purport to do one thing while actually announcing another. Um, You know, you find them 
in Macbeth, no man of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Mm. That looks reassuring, but actually it's not as reassuring as it looks. And there are lots of examples scattered across um, folklore in different cultures. So my theory is that this god Ea, who is a notoriously clever god, has managed to construct an utterance so that the same sequence of sounds can be understood in two completely different ways. Like if in English I say ice cream, that can either be ice cream at the seaside or it can be I am screaming. And so my theory is that if you look at these words very carefully, either they might mean, you know, the whole rain of food and wheat and birds and fish, or they mean there's going to be darkness and um, basically you're all going to die in the flood. So that the god uh, warned the people without warning them, um, possibly because he wanted deniability. So if the god said, well, why didn't you warn the people? He can say, well, actually, I did warn them. It's just they misunderstood it as a message about food. And if the gods say um, the other way round, then it's, oh, I only gave a message about food. I didn't warn them. So either way, there's doubt about to which version of the message he actually spoke. And Ea's motives for doing this, is that not to alert the other gods that he was warning humanity? Well, this is a very interesting question. And the more closely you read this poem, the more you find gaps in explanations. So lots of things aren't explained. And I think this is because the poet wants to cover a certain number of tracks. So it's always going to be impossible to pin anything on Ea with absolute certainty. But Ea's relation vis-a-vis the other gods is a very interesting one. Um, Afterwards, they accuse him. And he talks about having shown the flood hero a dream. And there's no sign earlier that he showed the flood hero a dream. So is this a lie or was there a dream that we don't know about? You can pursue these tangles um, as through a thicket of hawthorn and come out with scratches all over your face Mm. and no definitive answer. Does it, though, tell us something about how the Babylonians regarded their gods? Well, it certainly tells us about the verbal artistry of poems that were being written over 3,000 years ago and the word smithery they were capable of bringing about it. I think there also is buried in this an implication about um, epistemology and knowledge and how language relates to knowledge and what it's possible to be sure about. Um, Babylonians were great practitioners of what we call today divination, which involved things like killing lambs and looking at their livers and trying to read these livers as messages about the future from the gods. And so a message from a god, such as that in the Gilgamesh flood story, um, would probably have been seen under the rubric of divination. So once you have this ambivalent message, you start asking yourself, well, hang on a second, what about other messages? Were they ambivalent? Was ambivalence generally recognized to be a constitutive feature of the system of communication between people and gods, i.e. of divination? And actually, when you look closely, it turns out that there are other instances. So a German scholar who now works in America, Eckhart Fram, has found a lovely example. Um, there's an omen written down, um, which involves a, a particular cuneiform sign. And we have a commentary about this omen that shows it could have two opposite meanings. So this omen says that if such and such happens, then the king of this particular cuneiform sign will die. And normally, that's the king of the universe, i.e. our king, you know, the Mesopotamian king. So if the king of the universe dies, if our king dies, that's really bad. So this is a bad omen. But um, this scholar has pointed out that the commentaries say the same sign can also mean foreign. So it could be if the same thing happens, a foreign king will die. And of course, that's good because that makes us stronger. 
So what looked like being a bad omen turns out to be a good omen. So these people were having the time of their lives um, playing these hermeneutic games and constructing a system that allowed them a certain amount of flexibility. So there are lots of interconnections between language and religion and divination and broader cultural things. The Babylonians were a pretty clever lot. So were they, was a lot of this then hedging one's bets in terms of anything could be interpreted at least two ways? In the context of the Gilgamesh flood story, which is set in some sort of primeval time, it's quite hard to know what cultural assumptions we're supposed to make about these people who received the ambivalent or duplicitous message from the god Air. Um, were they thinking like normal Babylonians? Were they not? And that's a whole set of questions of its own. Mm. In terms of, as it were, real historical Babylonians, the people who were buried in uh, ancient Iraq, um, any divinatory system that enjoys any measure of longevity has to have a certain amount of flexibility built in to enable it to do something that it can't actually do, which is predict the future. So clearly, you know, if we just get random answers out all the time, we'd eventually realize that they're wrong and the whole thing collapses. But these people weren't stupid. You know, they ran empires and divination was really important for this. So how did that work? And that's the question you're asking. Mm. And part of it was about asking the right questions. So you ask very, very carefully controlled questions. And there was also the fact that if a question gave an answer that looked like it might be wrong, like, should I do X and the gods say no? Well, you can always ask again, and the gods might say yes, or you can ask a variant of the question, and the gods might say yes. So I think what uh, one role which divination played was it was very good at helping people to refine their questions and think very carefully about them. And there are many examples today that show that that's not a bad thing to do when you're formulating policy. So divination would have played a positive part, as well as emitting, as it were, these random answers from the livers of sheep, it would also have um, encouraged very careful scrutiny of the sort of questions that were being put to the god and how policies were being devised. Oh, interesting. Is there any explanation in, in the Gilgamesh uh, version as to why the gods wanted to kill all uh, uh, these ancient peoples? You ask extremely pertinent and intelligent questions. Thank you. So the simple answer is no. It's a conspicuous omission. Um, now, an interesting thing is there is a completely different poem, uh, which we call today Atrahasis, which is another Babylonian account of the flood. And there, the answer is that people were noisy. And if you think about it, the, the creatures who survived the flood are fish, and fish are completely silent. So it all hangs together with a certain logic. And you could say, well, you know, readers of the Gilgamesh flood story simply know that, and they import that knowledge, and that's the end. But matters aren't so simple, because... The Gilgamesh flood story presents itself as an eyewitness account from the flood hero himself. So the poem's central character, Gilgamesh, goes and finds him. He gets the story off him. Then Gilgamesh writes down his autobiography, as it were, on a stele of stone. And then the poet takes that stele and gives us the story. So if you sort of pretend to believe this, if you take the story at face value, we have an unbroken chain of knowledge transfer directly from the flood hero himself to Gilgamesh, to the Stele, to the poet, to us. And what this means is that all other poems that talk about the flood end up being cheap imitations because they don't enjoy the same level of authority. So Gilgamesh ends up upstaging these other poems, which also means that if they say something which isn't in the Gilgamesh flood story, um, well, you know, that's their problem. It's unreliable. They made it up. Forget it. So um, 
we end up in a state where if we take the story on its own terms, we simply have to deal with it itself and leave out the cheap imitations. So no, we don't know why the gods did it. It just says their heart caused them to do it. Dr. Martin Worthington is a senior lecturer in Assyriology at the University of Cambridge. Martin, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Moncrief on News Talk with the all new Dacia Duster. We've even impressed ourselves with this one. <laughs>